This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. We are heading into peak holiday travel season. And I'm pretty sure that most people who will be on the move over Christmas have their tickets booked. But what can we expect at our airports? Transport Minister Omar Al-Ghabra is promising that he is on it and that there will not be a repeat of the chaotic awfulness we experienced in the summer. We're working very diligently with the airline sector. I've been meeting with CEOs and airports and telling them it would be unacceptable for us to see what we saw last summer during this Christmas season. Our government is is working with industry as we speak to avoid it, and we're doing everything we can. But there are, as I said, there are some structural and systemic issues, some of which may not be implemented by Christmas, but there are operational things that are being done as we speak. Oh, yeah. Remember, this is the guy who blamed the airport mess on passengers who were, quote, out of practice, out of practice going through security. And we, uh, that's Pearson Airport here in Toronto, had the dubious distinction of being ranked the worst airport in the world. So is everything all good now. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And uh, we'd like to hear from you about recent experiences or what you're expecting or anything to do with that. And right now we go to John Graddock, a faculty lecturer at McGill University in Montreal and former executive at Air Canada, Dr. Gabor Lukacs, president and founder of Air Passenger Rights, and Martin Firestone, the president of Travel Secure. Hello, everyone. Good morning. Hello. Good afternoon. Uh, hello, hello. Good I, I afternoon. Wanted, hi. I want to start with Martin. He is actually at the airport, so he's being our, uh, you know, on-the-scene reporter today. So, Martin, w- w- what are things like there? I feel like I'm a cub reporter reporting for you today. Uh, it is unbelievable. We got through in minutes, and I mean minutes. This is U.S. Thanksgiving holiday, many people going, but it could not have been any smoother. So, quite frankly, if it can continue like this, we'll all be in good shape. Wow. How did that happen? I think they've got measures in place. They have the ability to check in relatively quickly. Now, I have Nexus. That moves me ahead of the line. No question about it. Oh, spoiler. I'm sorry. That you need. And if you don't have it, try to get it. How do you get it? I haven't figured that out yet for those who don't. But that really moved me along. And everything else has gone incredibly smooth. Oh, okay, Martin. Uh, <laughs> that was that was the spoiler alert for those of us who don't have Nexus. And of course, there's a huge backup on Nexus. Uh, let's bring in our other guests, John Graddock. I mean, the, the statement we heard from the minister is pretty vague. Um, do you think that the airports have the capacity for, you know, schleppy passengers who don't have Nexus uh, to avoid uh, what we experienced this summer? Yeah, well, Martin, I just want to let you know the Nexus offices in Canada are still closed. So yeah, we haven't they haven't been reopened yet. So if you want a Nexus card, you know, stand in line behind me. It's, yeah, you're uh, out of luck. It's, it's a long it's a long process to get it. We don't even know when we're going to get it. But uh, you know, I think the Minister of Transport basically, you know, drew a line in the sand, you know, over the you know last couple of days and telling both the airlines and the airports, let's not make sure let's make sure we don't have a repeat of what happened in the summer. We kind of had a situation where the the airline industry basically overextended itself in terms of the operations that they were being planned for the summer. Uh, and I think that uh, everybody's been going to be very wary of how the airlines are proposing to, to, you know, plan to operate over the Christmas period. Uh, and I think, you know, at the first sign of trouble, 
there might be some uh, ministerial action taking place to kind of nip it in the bud and start to uh, thin things out if things are not running properly. Like, and, you know, the, and, and the issue has always been staffing, still, and it still is there. You know, they still haven't got their numbers of staff that they're looking for. So when you say ministerial action, like what? Oh, just basically cut back the flight schedules. Oh, okay. You know, I think, so I think that that you know that that's what you know essentially is driving you know the, the you know the, the flow of passengers and you know and the, and the congestion and all of the issues that we're having at the airport is really a question of making sure that you know you've got you've got a flight schedule that is that can be supported by the, the staffing levels that you have at the airport and if you overextend that demand and that and that and those flight schedules you may be able to park the airplanes you may be able to fly the airplanes. But the airports basically aren't, you know, won't have the staffing levels. Maybe I'm not sure, but may not have the staffing levels required to support that schedule. So, if that, if the, at the first sign of that happening, I think uh, the minister uh, will probably jump in. Hmm. Uh, let us bring in Dr. Gabor Lukacs. Now we are in this. Uh, the regime of uh, passengers are being eligible for compensation in certain circumstances. And I've heard stories where two people traveling together, one gets compensation and the other is told that it was outside the airline's control too bad. Well, you just touched on the real problem with the APPR, which is that there are so many exceptions and loopholes that it is very difficult for passengers in practice to enforce their rights and even for judges to determine whether a given passenger is entitled to compensation. The EPPR has been a sham to create the appearance that we do have some form of passenger protection instead of actually creating real passenger protection following the European Union's model. What The problem is we are seeing now uh, with the uh, crew shortages, uh, staffing shortages issues is that the airlines always claim that staffing shortages is outside their control. And so if a flight has to be canceled for staffing issues, the airlines will tell you, well, sorry, it was outside our control. The, the, the ministerial intervention, if it comes at a later day, uh, it may already be too late for passengers because they already booked tickets, they already made plans on the basis of irresponsible promises by the airlines to operate flights for which they don't really have the staff available. Marty, you're the insurance guy. So what kind of insurance can people get that would protect them against canceled flights or whatever else might come up while they're on a, a you know, a, a Christmas time holiday? Yeah, more than ever. Trip cancellation slash interruption is the product to go with. Quite frankly, it was always an add-on. Maybe I'll take it, maybe I won't. I don't see how you can buy it now without, for fear of a lot of reasons, the first being getting COVID prior to the trip. If you get it within 14 days, you can cancel your trip, get back all the money you insured. That's huge because some people end up getting ill, lungs problems like that, and they can't travel. That's it. Now, with respect to the delays and the cancellations, that's so gray right now. Who's going to accept the blame? Who's going to pay the money? It's very confusing at best. But having said that, still a necessary purchase when you're buying trips with non-refundable dollars. Uh, what about snowbirds? I mean, uh, tomorrow is American Thanksgiving, so that's uh, that's going to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, a balagon on its own. But uh, when are snowbirds leaving or have they left? And yeah. and what about them? Yeah, they've left Dodge, as we say. They got out of Dodge early. They are gone from November to April. They've gone on mass. They've gone higher than pre-pandemic levels. And basically, their concern now is one thing, and that's called inflation, because quite frankly, living down there or going to Florida or Palm Springs, any of these places, the cost of food, the cost of restaurants, the cost of basically just surviving, your rents, your ownership, your taxes has become blown beyond out of their control. And they are complaining and even thinking of selling some of their places and getting out of there because it's not cost effective anymore. Well, I'm surprised by that because, you know, we know people with places in Florida and at least, you know, most of them, uh, there's damage because of those hurricanes. And uh, if it's not direct damage to their place, there's damage around them and everything is much harder to navigate, isn't? What about that? Yeah, well, there's tons in Naples and, and Fort Myers and that coast of Florida that are hammered and, in fact, can't even get into their places now and won't be repaired until 
next season. So they're going to Mexico now, if you can believe it, some of them. But the bottom line is the east side of Florida, as an example, was relatively untouched other than the latest uh, other storm that came through. And people are still traveling. The question is affordability, discretionary dollars, and do they have the money to be able to stay down there for six months? Uh, and and uh, the answer, you think, for a lot of people is no. Oh, absolutely. Inflation is the new pandemic down there because, quite frankly, it's very expensive to go down. And that Canadian to U.S. dollar, it is, it is huge and an implication going forward. So, uh, I mean, people aren't haven't taken that into account if you're saying that more people than ever have yeah. left already. Right. Pent up demand. They haven't been down to their places in three years. They're going in spite of that. But ultimately, it will catch up to them as they see the costs and go, you know what, we can't stay as long as we want. We can't rent as long as we want. And maybe we don't go back next year because of the high cost of living down there. Well, I mean, I would also imagine that given, especially on the side where the damage is, that that even rentals, you know, supply and demand going up, not because of inflation, but because of supply and demand. You're 100% right. And there's very few places to rent because all the people who can't move back into their homes are now renting. So you are right. Very little supply. And are, are, are they getting uh, satisfaction uh, in general from insurance? or? Uh, I'm hearing stories that a lot of them are not and nothing specific, but there's a lot of arguments with respect to flood and hurricane insurance right now. And to get new insurance for someone, that's a whole other story. Basically, it's almost impossible to get new insurance that will cover you for hurricane at this point. Um, Marty, I know that you are getting ready to board a flight. So uh, uh, what would you like to leave us with on this uh, airport airline situation? Well, if today is any example, Nexus or not, because I'm still walking around now and it's quite manageable, it's crowded, but everything seems to be moving. So ultimately, let's hope by Christmas time it doesn't get uh, a lot worse than this. And just cancellation interruption of product for sure to look into when you're buying your next trip. Okay, thanks, Marty. Have a nice trip. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, let's take a couple of calls. We've got Sharon in Mississauga, and Sharon also had a good experience. Yes, hi, hi, Libby. Thank you for taking my call. I had a great experience when I flew to Boston in September. Um, the flight was great, and the the airport experience was terrific. There was no delay. Um, there was a short delay going out there, but coming back, no delay at all. And uh, I don't have a Nessus card. I'm on the waiting list. So, <laughs> yeah, so I had a, a terrific time. Okay, Sharon, thanks for sharing that. Uh, John Graddick, what are some of the measures, supposedly, aside from staffing, that will alleviate the kind of bottlenecks that we saw in the summer? Well, I think, you know, you've got things like air traffic control and air navigation that's really looking at making sure that, you know, we're, we're only, we're putting aircraft into and out of Pearson and Trudeau Airport in a way that recognizes the capacity uh, of that airport's infrastructure to support those airplanes. So things that are, you know, passengers that are waiting on airplanes looking for a gate, uh, which we saw, you know, hundreds of airplanes this summer and thousands of passengers inconvenienced. I think that, you know, air traffic control uh, is going to be very, very conscious of, you know, allowing airplanes to, uh, to fly into Toronto, giving aircraft, aircraft landing, uh, authorities, uh, you know, if the aircraft is, uh, if there's no gates available. So there's going to be a greater coordination between air navigation, air traffic control and the airport authority in terms of availability of gates. So that's one, that's one better, one, that's one positive thing. Um, the others is, are probably going to be the way in which uh, the um, CBSA is, is basically staffing its operations at uh, border control uh, at Pearson and at Trudeau. Uh, they have increased their staffing levels, and everybody's getting used to things like the <laughs> infamous Arrive Can app uh, that people are getting more and more used to, and the friends, our friends at CBSA are getting more and more proficient at, at the handling. So there's a lot more experience under the belt at that one. And the only thing that's kind of concerning to me is baggage. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, the, the, the recommendation that we made, uh, back when basically to, to kind of limit your check baggage, uh, I don't think there's, there's enough stuff that has been done as far as I'm concerned 
to basically improve the baggage handling situation at the airports. And if the volume of passengers and checked baggage increases uh, to the point that it'll overload the system once again, we may be in a situation where we may have some of those baggage uh, issues. We won't have much, you know, delays and the cancellations will probably be reasonable. My biggest concern is baggage handling. So I'm recommending everybody buy air tags and put them in their bag and make sure you follow the bag. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I I was just about to bring that up. The they have these tags that can track your bag. Gabor, in terms of compensation for lost bags, what's the situation with that? So uh, the law is that if your baggage is delayed, then the airline has to pay you for all expenses that you incur while your baggage is missing. Missing as a result. So if you had their uh, bathing suits, depending on where you're going, or uh, snowboarding equipment, or if your bicycle is missing, you can rent uh, items which are high price tag if they are rentable and available, or you can buy whatever you need up to a limit of uh, approximately $2,300 Canadian dollars. That's a normal per passenger limit. If there is a willful misconduct by the airline, then the limit is higher. Uh, if you, your baggage is not found for 21 days, then you can uh, replace the entire content of your baggage again up to this approximately $2,300 limit and because your baggage is deemed lost uh, under the law. There I will also have to repay you any baggage fees that you paid. Well, uh, is it easy to collect that? That sounds like 2300 That sounds pretty good. Uh, airlines may sometimes uh, set barriers to collecting it. There are also some strict deadlines. You, if you re- do receive your baggage, then from the date the baggage is put into your hands, you have 21 days to make a claim for baggage delay. Airlines sometimes will ignore you or just uh, lowball you. We do have on our website, airpassengerrise.ca, a step-by-step guide for dealing with our situations, including a template for taking the airline to small claims court, and we encourage passengers to use that avenue. Uh, just don't take no for an answer if you incur damages. Uh, yeah, except uh, small claims court. I mean, I don't know how many years the waiting list for that is. Um, it's not that long. It's not that long, really? Okay, well, that's no, good. No, it, it, and, and certainly it's a better solution than going to the federal government with the Canadian Transportation Agency having over 20,000 complaints and also not being impartial. They are very cozy with the airlines. And uh, it's, a, it's a low re, low chance of getting a fair hearing. While in small claims court, it may take, even if it takes a year before your case is heard, uh, what you can be sure is that the judge may agree or disagree with you, but it will be a fair hearing. And do you have to have receipts to show that what you say was in your bag was actually in your bag and the value? No, you don't 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 have to have receipts. It's not reasonable to expect people to have receipts uh, for items they purchased several years ago. Of course, if you do have receipts, that's great. That's an additional uh, bonus. Um, but um, uh, you can provide an affidavit to the airline, for example. And it really comes down to also what is reasonable. If you claim you had there some diamonds, probably the judge may expect you to provide uh, receipts or if you had there some very expensive electronic equipment. On the other hand, if you've had there clothes and items that I would reasonably transport and carry to the purpose of your trip, maybe a, a suit and a tie uh, for a man or a, or a, or a appropriate uh, business attire for a woman who is going to a business meeting, that's uh, just normal uh, items that the court will likely take your testimony on it. John Graddock, uh, you brought up these air tags. Uh, so say you track your bag, you find out where your bag is. Uh, what, what then? I mean, how does that help you get it back if it is not where it's supposed to be? Well, you can be a nuisance to the airline. I think it's really a nuisance factor rather than, you know, anything that will get your bag faster. I think, you know, the airlines basically are are using the excuse that, well, we don't know where the bag is or that we think the bag's in California or you're in Toronto. Um, and you can basically, you know, tell them exactly where the bag is. It's not in California. It's sitting, you know, right behind the, the door at Pearson Airport in the baggage reception area. And so, you know, it's it's more for you to basically, you know, put some incentive on the airline to basically say, don't give me the excuse to, you know, that the bag's lost or we don't know where the bag is and call me back in a week and I'll let you know. You know where that bag is, and it's up to you know. And, and you basically put the pressure on the airline to basically get their 
act together and go get the bag for you. How do you get the airline to even uh, respond to an email or or do anything with that? Oh, I, you know, I, I think one of the one of the tools I've been using is social media. You know, ah, I think yes. So I, you know, the Air Canada monitors the, uh, their Facebook page. They monitor their Instagrams. They monitor Twitter as long as Twitter's around. Uh, but yeah. they will monitor. They will monitor it, and they will they will look at it. And if you get persistent and you get, you know, in, you know, obnoxious, yeah, and you say, you know, I know where the bag is. It's there. Go get it. And you know, they will typically respond. They will respond quickly. They'll give you a phone number. They'll give you an email address or a. Or and they'll a they'll account. tell you to direct message them. Yep. Oh yeah. They'll DM. They'll do the they'll do the stuff to basically say, you know, tell tell me the details. Tell me where you think the bag is, and then we'll expedite. So you know, it, it, it's it's an additional tool that you have as a passenger that will basically you know cause the airline to t- to pay attention. You know, and I think that's I, the whole point of the you know this brings up something that I've talked about before, and it's not just uh, the airlines; it's any particularly brand name company. This is what I have found that the only way to get their attention you you cannot expect to get a remedy if you have a civil conversation with someone about something that went wrong because things do go wrong. That will yield zero. What you have to do is get on social media and be really nasty and use words like rip off, terrible, what, whatever it is. And then you might get a response. And this really bugs me because you know what? Stuff happens. And, and why will you not allow me to try to solve it like I used to in a, you know, civil manner? And, <laughs> and the air, well, the airlines I, I, are probably the worst. Yeah. And I, and I think, I, you know, I, you, I, you, I, you I, I, understand okay. One at on. a time. Sorry. Gabor, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, John. I, I, I think that social media can be very powerful, but often a civilized professional email sent to uh, an airline's legal counsel uh, or legal department can be quite powerful and effective. Um, we certainly suggest passengers that if they have exhausted the normal modes of communication or if they're not getting a response from customer service, they may want to uh, send their uh, professionally written professional business like letter or email or fax to the recognized agent for the airline or the attorney for service for the airline in the province. And I can tell you now recently when my bag was actually delayed when I was coming back from Hungary, then uh, the way I got very quick resolution for a baggage uh, related expense claim was writing to their lawyers and within yeah. 24 hours, they got back to me. Yeah, Gabor, but I, I bet uh, they know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> they know, I, this guy's I, I don't trouble. Think it's just a question of not knowing knowing who I am. It's also a question that that I cited the correct legal basis for my claim, and that's why we have templates on our website. And uh, that is also why I would like to caution passengers to not make idle threats of suing. That's that's something that people. I think the reason that people find me credible is not simply because I am willing to take people to court, but also because I'm not in the habit of making idle threats. Okay, uh, John Graddock, you were going to jump in on on my complaint that that yeah, nasty no. messages on social media seem to be the only way. I know, I know, I know, and I agree with Gabor. You know, I, if I, you know, I think that you know, at a certain point, in time, once you've exhausted what you think uh, what I would call first line of of defense or first line of offense, uh, then you would basically have to move to the next level. But before you move to, you know, I think we, most of us would basically, you know, want to provide. You know, some level of uh, of leeway to the airline and say, let's try customer service first and let's see what we how far we get. And you know, after about three or four attempts at customer service, and you're not getting what you do, what what you're not getting any value for that conversation. I you know, I go with Gabor's you know and do a professional note upstairs. But yeah, I think the the question is, you know, tens of thousands of passengers every day are being mishandled, uh, but for however way. So you have to stand out somehow, some way in this morass of people that are out there looking for attention from the airline industry. And sometimes you basically have to not, you know, use civil language, but basically try to get attention. You have to get to the top of the pile. And I think that, you know, social media has been, you know, the one tool that, you know, people are looking at. If you're on a phone 
calling customer service at a call center, (laughs) and you're you're waiting six or seven hours for a response, you know, you you get kind of frustrated. And uh, if if you do happen to talk to somebody at the end of that sixth or seventh hour that you've been waiting, I don't think you're going to be as civil as Gabor would like us to be. And so, you know, we'll, we'll lose it. And I think that that's where we're ending up with situations where, you know, there's frustrations or, you know, and it's not just Air Canada. You know, I, I look at what's going on with Flair or, or with links. They're all in the same boat that they're basically having, you know, to deal with a huge number of passengers that have a, an, an issue with the service that they've been given by the airline industry. And it's it's all basically just showing up in terms of frustration on the part of the passenger and the employee as well. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, there's, you know, going to be a lot more to talk about on this subject as we head closer to the holidays and see how things are working out. In the meantime, thank you so much, John Graddock and Gabor Lukash. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Thanks. Thank you, Libby. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to talk soccer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Canada's big World Cup soccer match, the first in 36 years, kicks off in less than two hours. And I'd like to welcome Bob Richardson, who is a frequent guest and a member of the Board of Directors of Canada Soccer. But before we get to the substance of the story, I I really need to clear something up. Bob, how do you pronounce the name of the host country? Uh, Cutter. Cutter. Okay, so... Uh, that is one of dozens of versions that I have heard. And, right, and uh, I was confused about the what the right way is, even though I studied Arabic at university. So I know that the Q is a glottal thing from the back of your throat. It's like, oh! and the T is sort of in the middle. It's uh, not a regular T. It's like, um, I was confused about where the emphasis is, and I'm I'm a stickler for getting that stuff right, and so is the New York Times, and so they consulted an Arabic teacher. It's supposed to be a glottal sound, so it comes from the back of your throat. Ah. Oh. 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 Okay, that was, that was a good attempt. That was a very good attempt, yes. It's not an emphatic cut noise at all. Oh. Oh. Better. <laughs> huh. Huh. Something like that. The second syllable of the word has a dark twist. It is. It is. Oh. So the accurate pronunciation of the name of the country is Qatar. Okay. Qatar. Bob, can you say that? Qatar. Okay. That's not bad. Not bad for a first <laughs> attempt. I, I find the glottal ka and ta together a little difficult, and and, uh, I studied Arabic for a long time, but let us get to uh, the meat of the issue. And so this is very exciting for Canada, but this has been full of controversy. And, you know, one of uh, the issues, say, that I have when it comes to a country like Qatar is that people kind of take this veneer of westernization as a thing. And and we've had a problem with their gay rights. And then FIFA uh, just totally caves and, and prevents people from even putting a little armband on on their uniforms, Bob. What is your reaction to that? Well, look, the decision to go to Qatar was made, I believe, 12 years ago, long before my participation uh, with uh, with Soccer Canada. Uh, would my preference be to go to a country that, that uh, you know, has trouble with migrant workers, uh, has trouble with gay rights, uh, and a whole variety of other issues, to say nothing of the weather, um, um, and the amount of spending that went on for this World Cup? The answer is no. But at the end of the day, we are where we are. Um, and we have a choice as a uh, country, as did the other ones who qualified. 
Either you play or you don't. And every single country decided to play. Yeah. Uh, again, I mean, what do you make of FIFA? And then at the beginning, uh, the head of FIFA had this, I thought, very strange news conference where he identified with the Qataris. And, and, um, I mean, what do you make of FIFA and, and their attitude to all of this or his attitude? You know what? FIFA does best when it focuses on sport and when it focuses on athletes. FIFA does not do well when it focuses on politics and geopolitics and a variety of other issues. So uh, I'm happy that the games have started. Um, uh, People are, and it's been a very exciting World Cup uh, so far. Another big upset today, Japan beat Germany. Oh, really? Okay, I missed that. Yesterday, the Saudis beat um, uh, Argentina. Oh, yeah. I'm hoping, I'm hoping both of those bode well for us as we play Belgium this afternoon. So I think people are uh, now focused on the game, less fo- focused on the politics. I think that's, uh, I think that's good for uh, the World Cup. And I think, frankly, it's good for FIFA. Okay, before we, we get to our chances, the other thing, I mean, the other thing that had me scratching my head is that, uh, Cotter at first said, uh, yeah, you can buy beer. You have Budweiser, which is a huge sponsor. And then they just said, actually, you can't, not anywhere near the games. I mean, how do you get away with that? Well, that is a good question. Uh, I, I do give uh, props to, uh, to uh, Anheuser-Busch. Their first tweet after this change was made by the Qataris uh, that they weren't allowed to you know, sell beer essentially at the stadium was, and the tweet was, well, this is awkward. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, thought, uh, I thought it showed a good sense of humor. Uh, they're dealing with the situation. But there will be uh, business ramifications. They've spent tens of millions of dollars to be one of the major sponsors of FIFA and of the World Cup. And uh, I'm sure there'll be a price to be paid for this. And they said that they are going to give all that beer to the winner. I mean, I would imagine I, I saw pictures of the beer stacked up. That That's a pretty penny as well. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I think they've turned it into a great little sort of marketing opportunity for themselves, which is the sign of a good beer company in my uh, in in my estimation. So uh, good on them doing it. But uh, let's just say this isn't ideal, uh, but it's on, and uh, so far uh, the games have been good. Okay, let us turn to Canada and our chances. So I believe Canada is ranked forty first. Is that right? That's correct. And Belgium is ranked second. That is correct. <laughs> but uh, so look, we, yeah. uh, this is this will be. We've got three tough games, not just one tough game. This is a tough game against Belgium. We play the Croatians, who did very well in the last World Cup, and uh, and and are right there. And then, of course, we have um, uh, uh, we finish with Morocco, who uh, who is uh, easily the best team in Africa. So. As you go through, we've got a real tough lineup that we face in order to get into the next round. Won't be easy. Belgium won't be easy. But if there's anything this World Cup has shown so far is that uh, there's been uh, upsets and near misses all over the place. So I think it's going to be quite a quite an interesting game. Okay, let me ask a, a stupid question. So if, if we lose today, are we out or do we play no. those two consolation rounds? Uh, it's 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 a cumulative number of points. So uh, we play three games. Uh, we're in a division of four uh, teams, and then the top two uh, point getters, if you want to call it that, move forward into the next round. Okay, and uh, so uh, you know we had this huge Saudi upset yesterday, which had a lot of people cheering. I mean, people like that, the underdog. Uh, winning, uh, I can only imagine what the losing team is going through. It's like, like national shame, I would imagine. Yeah, no, and this isn't the first time the Argentinians have done this. So, uh, look, uh, they, I think they had won their previous 36 games. So this one was expected to be a very, fairly easy win for them. And uh, the Saudis uh, played well, played hard. 
And I think they just caught the Ar- Argentinians off guard. I says, I wouldn't want to be the next team that the Argentinians are up against because I think there's a lot of pent-up frustration there. I think they'll be playing very hard, very tough. And and what is the extent of that Japanese win? I, you know what? I didn't watch the game this morning. Unfortunately, I had I had work to do, so <laughs> I didn't have the opportunity interfering in my World Cup schedule, but uh, I didn't get a chance to see it. But uh, uh, Canada beat uh, the Japanese just last week in uh, in a friendly that we played in uh, in Dubai, if I remember. And uh, so uh, I wouldn't get too carried away. I wouldn't get too carried away with these rankings. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm looking at the clock. Uh, so what do you want to leave us with on all of this? Well, I think, look, number one, this is the first time in 36 years that Canada has uh, got into the World Cup. That alone is something to celebrate. If we get a goal, that will be fantastic. If we uh, win the game, that will be really amazing. But uh, this is a fast, really good, almost kind of cheeky team. I think they're going to play uh, a lot better than people think. And I think it's going to be a fun tournament. Okay. Bob Richardson, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Libby. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, we're taking another break. And when we come back, Metrolinx wants to take down five heritage trees that have been at Osgood Hall for 200 years, apparently, uh, without waiting for an independent report on whether that is really necessary for the Ontario line. We're going to talk about that and the brouhaha when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It is yet another example of Metrolinx riding roughshod over residents and stakeholders in the neighborhoods where they have projects. They have plans to cut down five trees in the historic grove at Osgood Hall as part of the Ontario Line project. And they've notified the Law Society of Ontario that they will begin doing just that on December 5th or earlier. And this despite evidence that this would damage the historic urban forest land that's been preserved for more than 200 years. And that according to the Law Society. Now, Mayor John Tory during his campaign for re-election said that he doesn't want these trees cut down, and that Metrolinx should wait for the results of an independent review by the City of Toronto on the Osgood Station site. The question being, can they modify the design a little bit so that this is not necessary? Uh, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And let's go to Steve Monroe, who is a Toronto Transit Advocate. Hi, Steve. Hello. So uh, what is your take on this? Well, um, I mean, you set it up in the intro. Um, it's being portrayed as, oh, it's only just five trees. And we have to take them down for archaeological, uh, you know, investigation. Well, Metrolinx agreed back when this was being discussed in the summer and was before council, before the election, that they would wait until the city consultant reviewed options for Osgood Station and looked at ways to avoid taking the trees down. Obviously, Metrolinx did not intend to honor that commitment because they want to cut down the trees next week. Um, the second part is, well, we're talking about five trees now, but the scope of their work site at Osgoode Hall is substantially larger than the area occupied by five trees. So I really have the feeling that Metrolinx is trying to downplay the um, the severity of what their their total work is going to do, as well as to try and tie it to some sort of warm, fuzzy, you know, archaeological digs are good things, so therefore these trees have to go. When, if the station were not built the way they have planned it, you wouldn't be digging a hole there in the first place. Let me ask you this. So they ostensibly agreed to wait for this report in the summer. Yes. Summer was months ago. I mean, was there any 
timeline because uh, a lot of things that come from the city take way too long. Uh, so why uh, has this review not been completed? Well, the the report uh, was to be done by the end of this year. Now, part of that timeline, I suspect, had to do with the election, right. because it couldn't come before council until the new council, which was having their first meeting today afternoon. So it couldn't come before council anyhow. So the, the report was to be commissioned and delivered by year-end and presented to council in 2023. Metrolinx knew this. They agreed to it. And at that point, they can't say, oh, you guys are dragging their feet. That's the schedule that they agreed to. And have they, I have not seen anything from them explaining why they want to jump the gun on this. Have you? No. I mean, other than, other than this, I mean, the idea that they have to do an archaeological investigation did not even come out until after the whole issue of, of the December 5th date for felling the trees was brought forward. They said, oh, we have this archaeological dig. Well, just a minute, guys. You didn't talk about that back in the summer. So. Archaeological dig, what are they looking for? Well, presumably, because the land, um, you know, Osgood Hall was built uh, in the early 19th century out in what was then the countryside. Uh, that's why that's why the fence has what are called cow gates in it, because farmers would, would drive cattle to market and the gates were intended to keep them from wandering into the lands of Osgood Hall. Um, so the, 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 the original hall was built to, oh, you know, uh, early 19th century. Um, the land hasn't been disturbed. There's quite likely going to be uh, remnants of previous indigenous uh, occupation of the land. And uh, therefore, you know, we're not just going to dig a hole. We're going to see if there's something down there. Anyway, they, they went through a similar situation over at King and Parliament when they excavated, uh, or they started the excavation for uh, what will be Corktown Station on the Ontario line. They did an archaeological dig. And, and actually what they were looking for there was remnants of the early city as opposed to the pre-European uh, settlement. Uh, in the area. And if they should find something like uh, evidence of, of uh, human graves, do they still go ahead? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. But the point is, this was not raised as an issue back in the summer when, when it was before council and when Metrolinx agreed. And now they've all of a sudden discovered, oh, we have this extra work we have to do. Maybe we better get started now. And And that's just bad faith dealing with the community. Well, and that's is- not for the not for the first or, or last time I must oh, add yeah. and and do they if to do this dig is it reasonable to say hey maybe you take down one tree but not five? Well, that the problem is um why exactly have they chosen what what's special about the location of those five trees? I haven't seen a map yet that says, you know, this one, this one, this one, this one, this one, and what might be under there, as opposed to the considerably larger area around Osgood Hall that they are planning to use as a work site. So they they really uh have not fully explained, you know, what they're up to. Um and of course the problem is that, you know, given that there have been alternative designs proposed, now whether they're practical, that's what the city's report is supposed to deal with. But there have been alternate designs proposed. And, okay, so we cut down the trees and we have our nice archaeological dig and then say, oh, look, we can put the station over there. We didn't need to cut down the trees. So it's kind of hard to put them back after the fact. So. And uh, can we expect uh, people chaining themselves to the trees and trying well, to prevent I, this? I, I have seen tweets from people saying, you know, I'm going to be there protecting those trees. Um, whether it will actually happen, um, I don't know. And and then, of course, what, what the reaction will be. Now, also, Metrolinx has kind of walked back their December 5th date and said, oh, we're going to have a community meeting to talk about this. Huh. Well, okay. Uh, if if on December if we wake up on December fifth and discover that at two o'clock in the morning they came by and the trees aren't there anymore, what good is a community meeting? So they need to specifically say, "Hi there, we are not cutting these trees." They, they sort of like, "Oh, we issued the contract and we forgot to tell them not to do it." That that's 
I mean, that's the kind of thing I would expect from Metrolinx, given the way they've behave and behaved in other communities. Okay, Steve, thank you for that. You're very welcome. Okay, now I'm going to bring in Mike Schreiner, the leader of the Green Party of Ontario. Hello there, Mike. Hey, Libby, how are you today? Fine. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, one of the ironies from all of this, they, they're moving ahead earlier than they planned. Metrolinx, uh, seems to be threatening that. And, uh, on everything else, when they have commitments to people, they are way late. Yeah, it's so true, Libby. And I, what I find so infuriating about this, we could just backtrack to the provincial level. I want more transit built. I want it built faster. And that's why I was so upset when Doug Ford ripped up the plans that the city of Toronto had already painstakingly put together for the relief line that the Ontario line has now replaced. And when you do that kind of poor planning and then you try to accelerate things, you run into challenges like what we're running into with the Osgood uh, station that, um, you know, things haven't been fully thought through and the implications in this case, you know, possibly uh, destroying a 200-year-old urban forest, um, you know, th- th- that's the cost of that poor planning. Uh, what do you say to people who say uh, five trees, we have three million trees in Toronto? Yeah, but you know what, these are, these are, this is a historic urban forest in, in a part of the city where it, you know, is mostly asphalt and concrete. And we know that with things like, you know, hotter summer days, we need those, you know, urban, urban forests, urban parkland to help um, mitigate uh, extreme heat. And so once we pave over that or cut the trees down in this case, they're gone forever. And as your transit expert suggested, you know, why not take the time to do this properly instead of cutting down these five trees and then coming back, you know, a few weeks later and saying, oh, you know what, we're going to go with this alternative uh, design, move the station over here, and we didn't need to cut the trees down in the first place. Uh, so let, let's do this properly uh, and and let's engage in responsible planning that both is environmentally and fiscally responsible. Uh Steve was intimating, he said they maybe they've walked back December 5th a bit. Um, do you have any insight on that? You know, Libby, unfortunately, I, I don't have any insight on that. Um, I will say to Metrolink's credit, they have walked back uh, certain proposals, and I can give you an example in, in my writing in Guelph. Uh, I'm a big supporter of All Day Two-Way Go, and one of the proposals they had put forward to, to facilitate that was to put in a, a substation transformer in a beloved park called Margaret Green Park in Guelph. And the community was up in arms, like, why are you going to destroy our park when there are other locations nearby that you could put this, you know, infrastructure in? And, and so with the community outcry, Metrolinx did back off and are now looking at um, considering other locations. Um, but I would say to Metrolinks, like, why not just get it right in the first place uh, and, and not have to, you know, backtrack uh, when you make a, a poor decision that you didn't have to make if you'd engaged in proper community consultation and good planning in the first place. Uh, how much of this, uh, I would say, kind of uh, strong arm approach would you attribute to the relatively new South African CEO? You know what? I actually attribute this more to the Premier of Ontario, to be quite frank. Um, Doug Ford has a habit. He did this when he was on council. He's been doing it as Premier. Um, like The Scarborough subway is a perfect example. We could already have a whole 17-stop transit system servicing uh, Scarborough right now. But, you know, the Premier, uh, when he was on council, he and his brother tore that up. We had a well-thought-through uh, relief line plan that the city had spent lots of money and time in designing, and the premier ripped it up and said, "Hey, I'm going to impose my plan." And now, not only are we dealing with a situation around the potential negative um, consequences to urban forestry and, and heritage, um, but also it appears that the budget has increased by seventy percent uh, huh. already before they've even really started 
you know, working on the line. And so that's what happens when you just discard good, thoughtful planning and then try to impose what you want. Uh, it, it, it creates both financial and other, other problems. What about this issue of the archaeological dig looking for uh, evidence of in- indigenous settlement? Is that just kind of an excuse to get those trees down? You know, I I, uh, I can't comment on the on the details of that to be honest with you, and, and really wouldn't want to. Um, I mean, those types of um, uh, explorations are, are are very important, and I think an important part of you know how do we honor and respect uh, indigenous uh, culture traditions, uh, etc. As we think about what reconciliation looks like. So, you know, the implications of that, I, I will leave to First Nations to, to discuss, but I do think that Metrolinx has a responsibility uh, to, you know, have that as part of its consideration as it moves forward with any project. Uh, so uh, where are we at on this? Uh, you know, do, do you think that they will, they've called a community meeting. Do you think that they will respectfully hang on or, or uh, Steve predicted something like uh, they'll go in on December the 5th and say, oh, uh, the contractor didn't get the message to hold on. Uh, is that the kind of thing you also would expect from Metrolinx? Well, I think given the uh, concerns that so many community members have raised as elected officials like myself uh, and others have raised, um, I hope Metrolinx hears that loud and clear, honors the community consultation process, honors its commitment to the City of Toronto uh, to not do this until it's had an opportunity to review um, the city's own independent review and consider uh, alternative designs and locations for the state for the station, uh, and, and so my hope that given, I guess the media spotlight and the spotlight community and political leaders have put on this, that Metrolinx will honor the community process and its commitment to the city of Toronto. Okay, well, where there's life, there's hope. Uh, Mike Schreiner, thanks so much for being with us. Okay, my pleasure, Libby. Anytime. Bye bye. Right now. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.